Welcome to Priority Message Series 1. This podcast is brought to you by the Fire and Rescue Services Association, a trade union within the Fire and Rescue Service that is independent and member-led. You can find out more about FRSA by visiting frsa.org.uk. Right, hello and welcome to another episode of Priority Message. My name is Tristan Ashby. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Fire and Rescue Services Association. And this episode, I'm joined by Deputy Chief Fire Officer Steve Healy. Steve started his fire service career as a whole-time firefighter in Cumbria back in 1997 and Barrow in Finesse. He progressed through the ranks, becoming an area manager in 2013, then assistant chief in 2015, deputy chief a year later, and chief fire officer for Cumbria Fire and Rescue Service in 2017. He then made the decision to move to take up a new challenge in Lancashire in 2021 to become the deputy chief and Director of Strategy and Planning. As a Deputy Chief Fire Officer and Director of Strategy and Planning, Steve is responsible for the strategic leadership and management of service on a day-to-day basis. And he is the Vice Chair of the Lancashire Resilience Forum. In his free time, Steve enjoys all sports, particularly rugby, and is the Chair of the Fire Sport UK Rugby Section Committee. Steve is also a member of the Institute of Fire Engineers and the National Fire Chiefs Council, where he is the National Lead Officer for Working Patterns and holds a Master's Degree in Management. Earlier this year, Steve was appointed NFCC Lead for On Call, following Chief Fire Officers Rob McDougall and John Price, who were stepping away, with Rob picking up the lead role of the People Programme. Steve will be assisted in his role by Assistant Chief Fire Officer Andy Cole from Dorset and Wiltshire Fire and Rescue Service. Both Steve and Andy bring decades of experience of working with on-call firefighters and are looking forward to sharing their experience and passion, supporting the vital role that on-call firefighters undertake across the UK on a daily basis. So, welcome to the podcast, Steve Healy. My interest and good to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, I'm not going to hide the fact I've been excited about doing this podcast for some time. Um, We've exchanged views over a number of years. Um, I have a lot of time for you. You're one of the rare breed who haven't been on call, but you get on call. And there's not many people um, in the fire service that are like that. Um, So in preparation for this interview... I've asked our local officials from across the UK if they could ask you one question, what would it be? Um, now, before I start into those questions, is there anything you'd like to to say to kick this podcast off? Um, I mean, thank you for your for your warm words, Tristan. Uh, yes, we've we've had many conversations over several years, haven't we? And um, my background is clearly coming from Cumbria, a very rural service. So, absolutely, we have to appreciate and understand uh, the on-call fire rescue service and it, it is different from the whole time uh, significantly different and I think as leaders of fire rescue services we need to appreciate that difference and make sure that we um, are there fundamentally to ensure we can provide a service in these rural communities and it is a real real challenge uh, and I'm sure throughout this podcast I'm really looking forward to uh, to the questions that you and your officials have come up with but I'm sure we can tease out some of the thorn issues that uh, the services are battling with so that we can really um, try and address the significant recruitment and retention challenges that everybody is currently facing across the UK. So we're uh, really looking forward to the next 45 minutes or so with you, Tristan. Excellent. Right, I'm going to kick off with the first one. First question is, what does the role of the NFCC on-call lead entail? Um, well, I think it's a really good question, and I would say it's it's applicable to all uh, NFCC lead roles, and it's essentially being the strategic leadership focal point to champion your particular um, area. It gives me great ability to look at the wider programme of work that goes on across the National Fire Chiefs Council, and you'll be unsurprised to hear that that's significant but it will allow me to put that on-call voice into these forums to make sure that the voice of the on-call is being heard, Um, and particularly so in things like Rob's People Programme, as you mentioned, Rob 
uh, McDougall from Oxfordshire, very passionate, uh, along with John Price, around the on-call challenges that we're facing. So I can now feed into to Rob's programme and make sure that the voice of the on-call is heard. Um, the operations committee, you know, there's lots of work going on there around recruitment, uh, point of entry selection tests, all of the things that we need to um, review. We will, or I will make sure that the, that the voice of of you, your members, the on-call communities out there is heard so that we're making decisions based on um, on the right thing for on-call. I think the other opportunity that the role provides is links into uh, into ministers, not all the time, obviously, and, and to get ministerial time is, is quite challenging, but that strategic link from NFCC into colleagues in the Home Office, uh, Local Government Association, the HMICFRS, it allows me the ability to to really champion the, the role of on-call firefighters across the UK. And I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm definitely going to take the opportunity through this podcast to talk about some of the key stats that we've got um, at the moment that we need to continue to drive forward the message that this is a significant challenge um, in terms of the recruitment and retention challenges we, we are all facing. So, uh, so yes, yeah, that strategic voice, I guess, Tristan, and it's the ability to, to have conversations at, at levels of NFCC and other uh, core partners to, to make sure that the on-call is, is being heard. So what, one of the benefits I had is that I've been involved in um, the NFCC on-call steering group some years ago when it was held, held up by um, Terry McDermott, previous chief of Derbyshire, um, who was brilliant a real champion of on-call and did some really good pieces of work. Then when he left, um, things seemed to just drop off the radar. The perception is it dropped off the radar for the NFCC. Then we had the pandemic. Um, so previously we had a steering group, and I'm not saying this is this was perfect, by the way, but uh, previously we had a steering group, then we had a practitioners group underneath that. Um, where every fire and rescue service with an on-call establishment could have a voice. Um, so I'd be interested what your key objectives are over the next 12 and 24 months as the on-call lead, whether you're looking to have a, a similar structure or, or do do have your own footprint with regards to how you want the process to run? Yeah, uh, another cracking question. And I guess um, you touched on it right at the very start. I'm not doing this role in isolation. Uh, Assistant Chief Fire Officer Andy Cole from Dorset and Wiltshire is, is assisting me. And in terms of the practitioners forum, um, Gary Ball, who's an area manager in uh, in West Sussex, is, is going to pick up the, the mantle around that. You, you mentioned Terry McDermott. Um, a lot of time for Terry. I'm hope, hopefully he's having a happy, long and happy retirement. Um, but Terry was um, responsible, I guess, for driving some significant things forward around the on-call. And I think your challenge is well made. It, you know, things have certainly dropped off, as I can see, and I'm sure that's that's what you're reflecting since the pandemic. And, um, and whilst we've tried to establish the on-call forums again it's it's been slow going but i am passionate about this tristan you know i've not come in this in, in this role for for six months 12 months I'm, I'm here for the long haul to make sure that we can we can really start making a difference to, to get back to your particular question um we're looking and i can't confirm the date yet but hopefully at the um some point early june to start hosting um a practitioner and a strategic lead forum and date will be announced very very soon and of course you and the other trade associations and unions will be invited along to that. And the purpose of that get-together is to is to kick off the new work streams in terms of the government's governance arrangements. We, we're likely to follow what you've said. There'll be a strategic uh, board, but the Practitioners Forum led by Gary Ball does need a, a kickstart and it's the responsibility of that strategic group to set that direction. Uh, in terms of key priorities, I guess... You know, for me, there's been a whole host of research, hasn't there, over many, many years. Many people have done university theses on, on the challenges facing the on-call. We've, we've had reports from overseas. And I wouldn't say we researched out, but we do know what the problems are. I think what we need to do, first and foremost, is get that key data-driven analysis that is succinct, that really draws out the challenges that all fire and rescue services are facing. Um, and if I may, I just want to quote some significant statistics now, Tristan, because I think it'll really help 
those listening understand the challenges that, that we're all facing. So if you look across the UK, 40% of all firefighters operate the on-call duty system, and that includes the big metropolitan fire and rescue services. If you strip out the, you know, the half a dozen or so metropolitan services, over 50% of UK firefighters uh, operate on an on-call basis. You look at the number of fire engines that are crewed by on-call firefighters, it's over 60%. So more than half of our fire engines across the UK are operated by on-call firefighters. And these percentages increase 75%, so three out of four fire and rescue services have fire stations that are operated either solely or jointly with whole-time crews uh, with on-call firefighters. So three out of four um, services uh, fire stations, sorry, operate with with on-call firefighters in some capacity. And the final couple of percentages I'm going to throw at, um, at the listeners is over 90% of the UK landmass is covered by firefighters operating this duty system. So it, it's not just a challenge for us up here in Lancashire, in Cumbria, in the north, in Scotland, in Wales. It's a challenge for the whole UK Fire and Rescue Service. And other than the large metropolitan services, pretty much 100% of fire and rescue services have more on-call stroke joint stations than pure whole-time stations. So it's a massive challenge for the whole sector. And I think that data-driven analysis that shows a true value of the on-call, which I've tried to capture there in a, in a couple of minutes of stats, the true value of the on-call, but also the significant challenges that we're all facing because the, the saddest stat in all of this, which I've not mentioned yet, is that over the last 11 years, the, the latest statistics from the Home Office say there's been a 25% reduction in on-call firefighters across the UK. Um, and that's a significant challenge for us because we cannot provide fire rescue services in, in many parts of the country without the dedicated commitment uh, of on-call firefighters. So my priority, I guess, um, in the first 12 months is to draw together all of that into a, a real succinct data piece that we can use um, for leverage with Home Office colleagues, with um, with government ministers, to look at how we can secure, hopefully, some additional um, investment into in, into the on-call service. Now, you know, I know you'll be aware of this, Tristan, and the, the NJC commitment to review the, the Grey Book uh, remuneration arrangements for on-call firefighters. I welcome that review and the committee to, to delivering that. Now the, the pay dispute is over, I think, in the next uh, eight months. For me, that needs a broader voice. It needs a voice of you. It needs a voice of NFCC playing into that. Um, it needs a home office to, to play into that. It's not just a challenge for the NJC to fix. So we need we need lots of voices to play into what that could look like. So I, I do see that uh, part of, the, of my role will, will, will be to look to shape and influence um, some of that. And I, th I think the final sort of piece in the next 12 months is to, again, kickstart that practitioner's forum because... I do know that there is some good practice out there in fire and rescue services and we need to capture that good practice and share it. And, uh, and the NFCC are developing a product um, alongside the HMI around a positive practice portal. So the intention is for us to draw together that real good practice that what's working out there in terms of on-call uh, and make sure that that's accessible to, to uh, fire and rescue services so that we can learn from each other um, and hopefully start to address this significant decline in, in what we're seeing across the country um, around recruitment and retention challenges. That um, That's really interesting and positive to hear. I mean, some people will say stats can, you can make stats say whatever you want, but I just noted down everything you said with regards to those stats. And that is really impactful. Um, the 90% land mass is, is the cherry on the top. But everything else just suggests to me that, yes, we've got a recruitment and retention problem. Yes, we've got a model that needs some TLC. It needs some tweaking. We've definitely not got a situation where we need to throw it in the bin. There are people, some 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 chief fire officers, and I'm not naming names, but you, you, will, you will know this. Some chief fire officers think that, the retained duty system is broken. It's 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 in the past. It's not fit for purpose anymore, and we need to look at something completely new. Um, those stats 
suggest that that isn't correct because it, we are still functioning on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I was just, I would be interested, and I, I guess I know the answer to the fact that you've taken up the lead, but I would be interested in, in what your view is of what needs to be done in general to the retained duty system to allow it to, to function in the modern society that we now live. Yeah, I, I agree with, with what you said, Tristan. I, I don't think the whole system is broken. I, I think the fundamental um, way the on-call system operates needs modernising, but I don't think it's fundamentally broken. And, um, you know, I've read several reviews. I've read the recent reviews of, of Dan Stevens at HMI in Wales around some of the challenges that the, our Welsh colleagues are facing. And whilst I recognise and agree with, with some of the findings there, I, I would also challenge some of the other um, findings because I don't think the solution is to just say let's throw out, and this is not necessarily what Dan was saying, but to just close a few um, on-call stations and put some additional whole time stations in there. It's not effective, it's not efficient, um, and the size of the UK landmass would mean that that's clearly not a sustainable uh, option going forward. We need to address some of the challenges that we're facing and be more flexible in our approach, flexible in everything that we do uh, around on-call. Um, we might touch on it later, but when you when you talk about is a firefighter a firefighter, ultimately, yes, but we've got to treat the on-call differently. We have to accept that flexibility um, and commitment that on-call firefighters provide because without them, we you know, you've quoted the stats or I quoted the stats earlier, we just we simply don't have a UK fire and rescue service. Um, so I think we need to address some of the things that we're doing. I talked earlier around the point of entry selection tests. If we're struggling to recruit, do we need to review that? I'm not saying we have a two-tier system, but fundamentally we need uh, resources in rural communities. And I did a lot of research in, uh, in Cumbria. I've done some in Lancashire and Shropshire doing that around what pools of people services have to recruit to. Um, traditionally, the five minutes, you know, many services have extended it, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. If that still provides a faster response than the next nearest fire engine, then that's what we should be doing. But in some of these rural areas, Tristan, there just simply isn't the people. So I think we need to change fundamentally what we expect in, in some of these real, quiet rural villages because, you know, the answer for me isn't taking away a, a rural resource and closing the fire and rescue station. The answer is looking at different ways of of operating, working with police colleagues, ambulance colleagues, you know, the role of community first responder, what part do we play in that? To make sure that the the role becomes sustainable and attractive because too many people join the on-call. It's not what they perceive. The the tie to a page system, um, it doesn't go off. They check the batteries constantly thinking there must be a problem and because of the great work we've done to reduce our core demand. So we need to look at other ways of of operating and, and make it attractive and um, a job, a career that people want to stay in for a long time. And I think some of the challenges we're facing around societal changes, a new generation, people disappearing, the young people to university and not returning, less jobs in rural communities. The, the whole host of challenges that I know that you're aware of and my colleagues across the UK are, are aware of it, we've got to look at different solutions to try and fix that and um, and there is some good work going on there and, and there's many things that we can learn across the sector to improve that recruitment and retention in the way that we mobilise uh, on-call firefighters in, in these rural parts of, uh, of the UK. You touched on, and I just wanted to go back because obviously um, a number of people listening or watching this won't necessarily be aware, but Dan Stevens is the current Chief Fire Advisor for the Welsh Government. Um, he was previously the chief of Merseyside. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And he was asked to do a piece of work, I think it was last year, um, to look at capacity um, to see whether the, the idea of broadening the role in Wales was a, was a runner. Um, and my understanding is that, that that piece of work led to a report that also then questioned um, the training capabilities of whole-time firefighters and also therefore retained firefighters and these so these are just my views um so we've we've read that report um and obviously dan comes up with an opinion 
I know Dan. I've got a lot of time for Dan. I think his lack of exposure to on-call um, within his role in Merseyside and in, probably in his entire career has meant that he's got a view of on-call and what they can and can't do. Um, I don't think that's particularly helpful and I don't think that is the view of the Chiefs in the three Welsh brigades either. So we're certainly having to have a bit of pushback on that. Um, I don't know whether you wanted to make any more comment on that or not. Um, I mean, I've known Dan a long time. Dan's very, very passionate, very, very capable. Uh, I think to, to, to support Danny, he will understand the encore because Dan went over and spent some time in, in Australia and fundamentally where it's, uh, you know, huge areas um, with, with encore firefighters. Dan has come up with a report with some recommendations for the Welsh uh, three Welsh services to consider. Um, I think in terms of, and, and very, very experienced in an operational capacity, um, uh, Dan, but yes, I've read the report a couple of times. Um, I, I think we do need to review some of the kit and equipment that on-call fire engines carry. You know, it needs to be fit for the risk in their rural communities. It, and it's like all things on-call, Tristan. It, for me, it's not a single solution. It's got to be specific for an area, whether that's the way that the crews uh, crew the fire engine, whether it's the equipment that they, that they carry, it's got to be suitable. Um, but I, I do think the work that was delivered some time ago, I think Paul Hancock, ex-chief of Cheshire, left this work around the amount of hours that on-call firefighters need to be competent and needs a bit of a look at. And I, I always use the analogy when I'm talking to uh, to our on-call stations here in Lancashire, on-call firefighters, that, you know, what is competency? And the analogy I use is I've got a, a 21-year-old daughter, a 19-year-old son. They both recently, a few years ago, passed the driving test. One of them took quite a few professional lessons, you know, the odd bit of challenging conversations in the car with, with, with the dad, but quite a few professional lessons to, to manage to pass the test. The other one picked up like a duck to water. And I think that's applicable to every firefighter, whether that's a whole-time firefighter or an on-call firefighter. How much input and training do you need to, firstly, gain competency and secondly, to maintain it? It's not a binary. It's not X number of hours here or there. It is different for everybody. And it's for chief fire officers to ultimately determine through their, their leaders further down the organisation what competency looks like and what we expect as a sector. And I, and I do think over the years, that term the firefighter as a firefighter has led to many services, probably for the right reason. And, you know, the legislation coming in and health and safety culture, et cetera, but almost treating on-call firefighters the same as whole time with the same levels of expectations. You must do this ILM course. You must do the ICL qualification. You must do, you know, 10 days to get qualified in X, Y, and Z. So I think we need to address that. And what we need, for me, is a recognition that on-call needs to be at a set level to be safe. And if you want to progress into whole time and get formal qualifications in A, B and C, then that is a route that you could also, I'm not saying on-call can't do that, they can, but there needs to be a base level for me of what the minimum expectations are to be an on-call firefighter and that, and that bar for me should be different to what we expect of a, of a whole-time firefighter that's frankly doing it 42 hours a week versus the two hours an on-call firefighter does it. So, um, so yeah, I know I've gone on a little bit, but I, I do agree with some of Dan's findings. I, I would challenge some of the other findings but I think that's for NFCC to also do that work around competency, point of interest action tests, get the voice of the on-call into those NFCC forums so that we're not setting standards that, quite frankly, are unachievable in, in many rural communities. And are we better having firefighters available to respond that may not you know, be superman in terms of fitness levels? Not for one minute suggesting that's what you need to be a whole-time firefighter, but we've got to somehow have the ability to have fire engines available with people available to crew them in, in, in many of these rural communities. Yeah, and I think I think if I understood what you're saying, I, I agree that there should be a core firefighter role. And then you can add bells and whistles, if you like, to that role, depending on the need, depending on the individual, um, depending on the resources available, the makeup of the station, etc. So absolutely agree with that um so my view would be that we do tend services do tend to want to sheep dip everybody 
um, because it's, it always seems to be – all the processes seems to be um, a means of making it as easy as possible for management and HR. That That's that's the perception. Um, you know, a new policy or, or a policy will be revised based on how it works for whole time, and then the retained on call uh, will be bolted on and it will be made to work even if it doesn't. That, I don't know whether you agree with that, but certainly how, over the years, that's certainly how, how it's felt. Yeah, I mean, I, I would support HR colleagues and, uh, and managers at all levels. I think services are facing difficult challenges across the piece, um, as we know. Um, but, but I do recognise what you're saying in terms of that policies written. Um, and it, I guess it depends on the split of the service. And if I use uh, an example of Cumbria where you've got, predominantly on-call firefighters. You know, two-thirds of Cumbrian firefighters will be on-call. Uh, and in Lancashire, we've got more on-call firefighters, um, well, more whole-time firefighters than on-call in Lancashire, 600 to 400 on-call. But in Cumbria, it was the opposite way around. And I think sometimes the mindset of writing policy is determined by the percentage of your staff that are one or the other. You know, is it a predominantly whole-time service? or a predominantly on-call service. I think when I quoted the figures earlier, 75%, three out of four fire and rescue services, have more stations that are either fully crewed with on-call or joint on-call and whole time. So we should, as leaders, be looking at this from an on-call perspective. And, and, and uh, I think the solution lies in you can create policy, but you've got to do, put yourself in an on-call firefighter's shoes. And... Um, the development of, of on-call analysis when you're going through a policy change and similar to a equality impact analysis, you need to do that analysis of on-call as well and see what that impact is going to be on on-call firefighters. And it's too easy to say, well, we'll bring a new, a new learning management system. Um, you need to do X number of hours every week to, to fill in dot every I and cross every T on that system, as an example. Well, that's all well and good if you're at the fire station for 42 hours, like our whole time, Firefighters. If you're if you're an on-call firefighter and you've got other employment for 40, 50, 60 hours a week, you've got very limited time. So we've got to look at it from the eyes of on-call firefighters and make sure that the policies that we're all writing uh, do support that on-call system. And it's almost a light version for me. And I know you know back to Dan's uh, reporting worlds and you know we'll quote worlds because it is very very rural and they rely heavily on on-call firefighters in Wales, like many parts of the, of the UK. But I recognise the great work that some of the services have done around the micro-teachers. So, you, you know, you create, you can have your bells and whistles development tools and then you can have the micro-development tools and, and the minimum standard is you need to look at the, at the micro-teach elements and if you want to delve further into it, then these are the additional modules if you've, if you've got the time to do it. So I think as a sector, we need to set that minimum level um, and then you, you grow that if you wish to progress as you rightly say if you wish to progress further I think the other thing I would say Tristan I hear a lot that the on-call can't do this you can't do that um, things like Swift Water Rescue for example and I know in many rural services without on-call firefighters being trained in Swift Water Rescue for example they wouldn't have a Swift Water Rescue provision so I don't think, and I'll probably repeat this phrase a few times in this uh, in this podcast, but I don't think it can be a one-size-fits-all, and I think it's got to go back to what works in that community, what are the risks in that community, what's the appetite of that on-call unit to pick up additional skills if they so wish, and, and us as leaders need to, need to support them as best we can, and I, I get the huge turnover, and it may, may ultimately, if you did a deep dive analysis, say, well, it's, you know, you're better off training whole time because of the longevity but I don't think that's a solution and it's certainly not not a solution in um, in rural parts of the country No and I think you know if, if anyone can take a few points away at the end of this podcast one of them would be one size does not fit all totally agree with that um, we don't want to be using the sheep dip method there is no <laughs> silver bullet in terms of the answer and it's an ongoing issue that needs to be managed. Once you fix a fix the, the the retained duty system, which we will, we've got to keep working on it. We can't just let it and leave it. Which was, I think, one of the um, 
one of the problems with the pandemic, when we had the pandemic, availability increased significantly because people were being made furloughed, they were available a lot more. And I think a lot of people then sat back and thinking, well, actually, I haven't got to worry about the recruitment and retention issue because all the stats are telling me everything's lovely. Well, that was always going to stop. And I don't know what your thoughts are, but my understanding through the stats, because I, I like my stats too, is that actually we're in a worse position now after the pandemic than where we were before because people have realised actually we can do things differently but there's a different way of working I don't necessarily want to be tied to my alert or 120 hours a week I don't necessarily want to be tied to the fire service full stop and have left yeah yeah and, and, and I, I do recognise that I think the availability was recognised in HMI CFRS reports certainly recognised in my service here in, in Lancashire that availability throughout the pandemic was gone you know, into the high 90% because everybody was working from home or, or isolating, et cetera. So, uh, and that has, that has steadily declined as, as people have got back to work and the pandemic certainly not over. I had COVID myself for the first time two weeks ago and uh, <laughs> uh, and, and so it's certainly not going away. But, but as society gets back to normal, yes, on-call availability is, is significantly now falling off the other end. And, uh, and I think we need to learn the services. What are the opportunities that, that new way of working offers to fire and rescue services. And um, I do know North Yorkshire uh, have done this and many other services are looking at it, but to create um, fire stations into office space and offer opportunities for people yeah. who might not have ordinarily looked to recruit into the service, but come and work from the fire station, we'll provide the Wi-Fi, we'll provide welfare facilities, you can work there. And at the same time, we'll train you to being on call firefighter, you can earn more money. You're keeping your on call fire engine available, and and I don't know whether North Yorkshire have done the analysis of that yet. It's probably very early days, but hopefully they are seeing some success in that. And I think we need to look at opportunities where um, people don't necessarily need to live within five or six or seven minutes of a fire station if they can be a bit flexible and say, well, actually, we'll we'll post it to that station because it's going to be off the run Monday to Friday. And, you know, we'll pay travel, whatever it may be, and you can operate from that on-call unit to make sure that that fire engine is available. And uh, and you've got free Wi-Fi, free welfare facilities, challenges around cost of living crisis, particularly through the winter months, you know, having to heat your home at, um, uh, heat your home, at home. Uh, and, and we can provide that as a fire service at the same time, address some of those challenges. So I think it gives us opportunities, Tristan, and I think we need to, again, capture that good practice and make sure that that is shared across the sector and really look at um, who we can try and now attract into the fire service rather than think, well, yeah, it's a challenge. Let's get our head in the sand again. Let's try the same thing we've tried for, for decades uh, and be surprised that availability is declining. So it's got to be flexible. That's a key word. Uh, it's got to be not one size fits all, uh, but there are solutions out there. Absolutely. And we need to, to share that good practice. I remember having a conversation with um, Becky Bryant when she was the chief of Staffordshire. This was probably about five, six years ago. Um, and we were talking about exactly this, Green Book staff working from fire stations. You know, county county councils have lots and lots of staff that could uh, be on call firefighters. And that was that was a time before we'd even heard of Teams and Zoom uh, and, and agile ways of working. So totally agree with you. Um, I think it's it ticks so many boxes in terms of how it should work and the benefits for everybody. It's just identifying a service that is is doing it, proving that it works well, and then um, demonstrating that we we can expand that across other services. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, uh, I'm going to move back know, to the questions. Oh no, far away, sure. far away. No, no, no. I think there's a bit of a delay in the. Uh, there's a bit of a lag there, Tristan, so obviously Wi-Fi challenges. But, yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with, with with what you've said there. We've got to look at the best practice, draw it into that central portal, the, the positive practice portal, make it available to, to other services, and, and we can learn from each other. Um, there's some great work done in, in Andy Cole's service down in Dorset and Wiltshire around a demand dashboard, for example, which... Uh, essentially allows new recruits, new potential recruits, to come in and say, well, if I give... X, Y, and Z availability, what is the likely number of incidents I'm going to be turning out to? You can then take that one step further and 
and put in the salary calculations. So people are coming into the role with clear expectations of what it looks like. All too often, people join and it and they're not getting as uh, as many turnouts as, as they feel. So you know, bring people in with expectations of this is what it looks like, rather than um, people joining the service thinking that every two minutes the page is going to be going off and they're going to be flying around on a fire engine. So capture that good practice, share it, and allow services to look at other opportunities and other ways to try and recruit and retain. I think I think that's a really important point that you've made because we had a um, we had a meeting of local officials a couple of weeks ago, um, and we were talking about we were breaking it down. We were talking about the processes, and we obviously started off about advertising, use of social media to 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 raise awareness that there are vacancy and the the career is a possibility for people, and and then we started talking about what services do once they've got the individual interested. And it was interesting how some services would say, well, we don't want you to go on stations. We don't want you to go to the local stations. We don't want you to pick up any bad practice, which I I find odd because if you don't have the confidence that your staff are safe and are doing things correctly, then you've got an issue. But individuals do need to have a full understanding as to what they're letting themselves in for that they will have huge restrictions there are massive benefits to being an on-call firefighter huge but we are losing too many people at great cost who are coming in through the door but are then leaving far far too quickly yeah again i'm I'm agreeing i mean the stats say it doesn't it 25 percent uh less firefighters on call firefighters now than we had 11 years ago um, so the figures are there for everybody to see. And, and I think the retention rates now, there's been lots of studies done on that. In my own service, it, it varies by fire station, but on average, you know, you're looking at single figures now, the, 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 the amount of time that people join and, and stay with us as on-call firefighters as society changes. So it is making sure that they've got that expectation of what the role is to start with, and that is clearly set out, and we're not giving um, false promises that it's going to be something that it doesn't, end up being but but also how do we make it more attractive in terms of the amount of turnouts that crews are getting to benefit communities i'm talking medical response you know what what we can do to support um ambulance and, and health colleagues but at the same time that has a negative effect in you know for primary employers because the more times that firefighters are released to do that there's there's, there's a knocking impact so we need to understand both the benefits of, of doing, we touched on broadening the role earlier, the benefits of, of doing that against some of the challenges that uh, that we need to work with primary employers to, to, to get through. Because as you said, the, the role and the training, uh, the experience that we give to firefighters that come in and join the on-call service, um, far outweighs for me the, the negative impact of employers releasing these staff for uh, you know, probably worst case scenario for them, uh, a very few hours a week. And um, and to get those stats available to make sure that employers understand the likely demand if they release staff, particularly Monday to Friday, where we most of us face significant challenges, um, but also articulate the significant benefits of supporting on-call firefighters. And, and again, there's lots of work being done um, in many services around that to recognise the value of of employers, in fact, there was something on, on workplace you probably saw it the other week, Tristan, where somebody had come up with the suggestion of, do we have an annual day that celebrates uh, employers that release on-call firefighters every year? So th- things like that we need to feed into to garage practitioners forum and make sure that we, we're considering that. And if we feel there is benefit, then let's get our weight behind it and uh, and do it nationally to make sure that we are truly recognising the value of those thousands of employers out there that do support fire and rescue services, providing um, fire stations and fire engines, crewed by on-call firefighters in, in these rural parts of, of the UK. Yeah. Um, just touching back on workplace, um, I think that is underutilised and hopefully that's something that you're going to pick up. We do need a toolbox where people can dip in and out. Um, it needs to be um, more user-friendly, um, we need to have uh, good practice that's proven good practice in there because all too often um, people will post uh, policies um, at, at request, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those policies that are being shared around are good. 
Uh, I think we yeah. need to get a lot more smarter on that. So I'm, I'm hoping that's something you're going to do. But just going back to the list of questions, and you touched on it, so I'm going to I'm going to move on to this question now. What's the position of NFCC regarding broadening of the role of a firefighter? Uh, a really good question. I, I think it's been hopefully clearly articulated, trusted in uh, in fit for the future. That the it wasn't just an NFCC document; it was local government association, the fire and rescue service employers, the, the latest iteration of fit for the future, which has been talked around for many years now. That came out, uh, I think, in summer last year. Clearly articulates the. Um, NFCC and say the LGA, the, the employer's position around the potential broader role for fire and rescue services. Uh, you'll know, and your listeners will know, uh, around the findings of HMICFRS inspections, the government white paper that we're still awaiting a response for. All of these things need to come together, and very soon we need to clearly identify what is the role of the fire and rescue service and uh, as importantly, what, is, what does that mean for, for firefighters and the role of firefighters? So within that Fit for the Future document, there are a couple of things in there that do talk about that broader role for health. So the emergency medical response uh, when people are suffering cardiac arrest. I know, sadly, and it is very sad, is this, that across the UK, people will sadly have lost their lives that I believe could have been saved if we hadn't have stopped the NJC trials uh, a few years ago around that corresponding pilot. So I do recognise there is absolute value for us to do that, both in a whole time and an on-call capacity. And I would argue um, from an on-call perspective, it, it is more and more important than ever because of the response times for ambulances to get into many of these rural towns and villages. So we, we've certainly got a role to play and that's recognising fit for the future. Um, beyond that, in terms of the broader medical activity. Uh, again, we know the significant demands on health, whether that be through the pandemic or, or other times when there's pressures at the ambulance, at the um, hospital end, where they're not getting the discharges, etc. So the, the Fit for the Future does recognise, is there an opportunity for services to step into that place, whether that be, you know, picking elderly people up, doing lower level um, calls that's broader than the Cat 1 uh, cardiac arrest response, when demand is significant, but that's got to play in, you know, to that NJC environment and make sure that the, you know, the remuneration arrangements are, are agreed. But for too long, we've talked about this, Tristan, for too long, we've talked about it and sadly people have lost their lives and could have been saved um, had we been corresponding. And I know many services still still do that. I'm passionate to get that off the ground um, here in Lancashire. We've got a pilot ongoing at the minute using some of our community safety staff that will hopefully broaden to, to some of our operational staff, our, our, our officers and the police do it, you know, they carry defibs, the police officers. It, it's something that we should be doing to support uh, our communities. We're a public sector uh, organisation. Our firefighters, many of our firefighters, I can't speak for all of them, but many of our firefighters that I talk to on station visits, do want to do this, they do see the benefit in it, but it's it, it's got to be resolved uh, on a national level because if we just try and continue to get this over the line locally, is a significant challenge, both from, um, I guess, some of the trade union challenges within our sector, but also the, you know, the ambulance service trade unions. Absolutely, there's a role for those unions to play, but, but we need to make sure the solution's in there so that the people that need our help when they're suffering cardiac arrest, uh, get that. You know, the first person you want to see if you if you are suffering a heart attack, cardiac arrest is is a trained paramedic with a defib. You want them there in seconds. Then failing that, you, you want anybody that's trained with, with a defibrillator, um, whether that a community first responder in, in many of these rural, whether it's a fire engine turning up, whether it's somebody running the local Asda garage and picking up the defib that's that's probably in your in, in your supermarket and running back and, and helping. Time is critical, and I think as a sector we need to pick this up to support society, to, to support health colleagues, and and do the right thing for people when they need help as quick as they possibly can. So I, I agree with everything you said. We're both organisations are completely on the same page with this, and. Um, it's a huge amount of frustration for our members that 
this has been talked about, and this is one of a number of subjects. We're talking about recruitment and retention for on-call. We've been talking about that for years. I was at the NFCC Culture Conference Monday and Tuesday this week. Uh, we've been talking about that for years. Um, so there's a common theme that we do a lot of talking. We all sort of believe we know what we should be doing, but we're not getting there. Um, it, it, it seems perverse that we're expecting members of the public to use DFIBs, but we're not using potentially trained firefighters to be able to do that. Or, you know, um, one of the questions I one of the questions I had was, um, um, how have we arrived at situations where fire and rescue services rescue pigeons, but not elderly fall victims? And I think you know. <laughs> It's a sad situation that we're in with regards to that because we seem to be coming up with all sorts of political, um, ideological reasons as to why we're not doing stuff. I'm not talking about everybody, but certain organisations, when really we should be looking at why we should and how we should be helping people. The the call levels have gone down dramatically. One of the problems we've got a recruitment and retention crisis uh, in on-call is because of the low call numbers. This would open up the ability for people to earn more money for the job to be more attractive to a wider group of people. Um, again, you know, very similar to, to when we were talking about working from state from fire stations. This is a no-brainer. We should be doing this. We should be um, getting hold of this and driving it forward as, a, as all of our organisations, NFCC, LGA, NJC, FBU, FRSA, for everybody, we should just be getting on with it. And it is of huge frustration that we had the trials that you spoke about. Um, what were they, 2015, 16? Yeah, it's going much some years ago. Yeah. Um, those trials, I would agree with you, were very successful. The vast majority of those people who took part in those trials wanted those trials to carry on because they saw the benefit of what they were, what they were achieving, what they were doing in terms of um, saving public lives. Um, I haven't got an answer to how we push that on forward, and I'm not expecting you to have that answer. But it, it is reassuring that we both share the same view, talking about our organisations, and my guess is we've got the commitment from you in your role that you'll be doing everything you possibly can to make sure that we achieve that aim. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, from conversations we had when I was up in Cumbria, Tristan, the conversations we've had now, now I'm in Lancashire, um, Justin, our chief, it, it, you know, has, has led this previously when we were involved in the trials. We had a couple of stations doing it. It was a success. Yes, we had some challenges to address. Um, some of the firefighters I've spoken to that actually had a successful resuscitation Um you know, almost in tears because what greater feeling than saving somebody's lives. I talked earlier about, I talked earlier, sorry, about um, the pilot we're getting under the way now in Lancashire using some community safety staff. We've had great success already with that. Um, used again the DFib successfully ahead of the ambulance getting there and saved somebody's lives. Um, it, it's clear that that role that we can offer will save lives. Uh, and I'm with you. I'm frustrated that it's taken so long. And the talking for me needs to stop. We've got to get behind, as you know, you quoted all those different core partners. We've all got to get behind this and we've got to do the right thing for our communities. I'm, I'm sure I speak on behalf of every firefighter, you, everybody that's listening. If you, your loved one, anyone close to you, anybody in, you know, falls over suffering cardiac arrest, go back to the earlier point, you, you just want someone there quick that can help. And I did see that, and I think there was a, a tweet some time ago from um, the, the pigeon example that you quoted. And, and yeah, we had an aerial ladder platform uh, at that incident. We had a probably, not, not as a Lancashire, I think it was down south somewhere, a couple of fire engines, no doubt some flexi duty officers, probably committed for four or five hours to, to rescue a pigeon from, uh, from an aerial. I'm not saying that's not a role that we should be involved in, in, in delivering and, you know, care for, for animal animal welfare, et cetera. Absolutely, we should. But if we're doing that, why, as you write the challenge, why are we not prepared to um, to put a defib on, on a human being that is suffering 
and, and needs help. And I know if, if anyone was to knock on any of our fire stations in Lancashire, probably any fire station across the country, and say somebody across the road is, is suffering a cardiac arrest, I know that our firefighters will respond. What we need to get to is a place where we're doing that with agreement. The T's and C's have been sorted out. There's a national uh, agreement to deliver it so that we can support people when they need our support the most. So, yeah, I think we're, we're again, we're saying the same thing, Tristan. Um, passionate about it. It needs to happen. It's been mentioned in um, in the HMIC certified reports. It's mentioned in the white paper. The talking needs to stop and we need to get behind it and, and make it happen. And there's a firm commitment from that Fit for the Future document to suggest that the LGA are behind it, the employers are behind it, and NFCC are clearly behind it, and we just need to make it happen. Okay, I'm conscious of time. I know you're a very important man. You've got things to do. I've got two more questions. Um, I've got loads of questions, but I've got, I'm going to pick two particular questions out. Um, and then I'm going to actually hope that you'll come back for another podcast because I think we could talk for another couple yeah, more hours. <laughs> Absolutely. It probably, would be, it probably would be good um, if, if we spoke after June when you have your first practitioner's meeting. Um, and keep everybody up to date through this podcast on that. Absolutely. More than welcome to come back, Tristan. As you rightly say, I think we could probably talk for another two to three hours with the challenges that, we, that, that we're facing. And um, But yeah, more than happy to come back. So I'm going to ask you two more questions. Um, first one is, how can we attract more women and ethnic minorities? The question where I was given is into on-call, but I'll open that up into the fire service, more importantly. I think you're absolutely right with that last sentence there. I, th- I don't just see this as a challenge for on-call. I think all of uh, our services are, are struggling with that diversity challenge and making sure that we've got a workforce that represents the communities that we're, that we're all here to serve. Um, again, there's some good practice out there. Uh, I know Rob's service in Oxfordshire um, have done some great work recently that has seen them double the amount of applicants uh, from diverse backgrounds that have come into the service. And one example, when we're talking about minority ethnic groups, um, I think they'd, they'd visited the mosque, the local mosque, and they'd placed in there a set of fire kit, not a person, but just a set of fire kit on a chair to get the conversation going about, well, you know, what what is that? Why is that there? And to start that dialogue with um, some of our uh, you know, black minority ethnic communities to try and make them aware that the fire rescue service is a really rewarding career for them. I think there's more work we need to do, particularly to to attract uh, females into the service. Again, there's great examples across the country where we've had um, female on-call firefighters, you know, talking through their experiences outside of the service, what role that they carry out and how they've managed to um, to join the on-call service and the benefits that that, that gives. We, we host Taste Days here in Lancashire to, to try and, um, you know, attract more females into the service to run them through some of the practical tests. I mentioned very early, you know, early in this podcast, the, a, a review that's going to happen very soon around the National Point of Entry Selection Tests. So again, that needs a review for me. Um, is it a one-size-fits-all? You know, many of those tests that we do, particularly around strength, um, are determined on lifting a 13.5-metre ladder. Do we need 13.5-metre ladders on every rural fire engine? I'm not sure we do. Um, we need to... The great work that I think was done previously um, around the on-call website uh, and the, the work that Terry did around that need more campaign. I think that was a success. But I think we need to make sure that our recruitment advertising is commensurate with the role that we're expecting. Very too often I see things on social media with services. um, And I think Dawn mentioned this. I listened to Dawn's podcast with you the the other month, you know, the sexy stuff and, and the firefighters running into a burning building and carrying, you know, the casualty down, down the ladder. Thankfully, due to the great work that we've done, um, you know, in community safety, people are far safer now in the homes than ever before. But if, if you're wanting to join the fire and rescue service and see this, you know, almost male macho image of, of the firefighters running into burning buildings and carrying out all of these rescues, then you, you might look at that and think, no, oh, that's not really 
a job for me. Yes, that is part of the job. And yes, we've got to make sure that people are fit, healthy, safe, uh, and can carry out those when, when required. But you know as well as I do, the, the bulk of our calls are not of that nature. So we need to review how we advertise and um, how we market ourselves to make sure that we are attracting more and more people. And again, repeating what I said about the great practice that North Yorkshire are doing around people that work from home now. You know, come and work for us, come and work at a fire station. We'll open the doors, whether you're male, female, black minority, ethnic, whatever diverse group you are from, we can offer that office space for you to be able to operate Monday to Friday free of charge and we'll train you to be an on-call firefighter. So um, there's much that we need to do, Tristan. I think we need to review the work that Terry did. We need to look at that uh, on-call fire, um, I think it's .net website, to make sure that that's still been updated and is doing what we set out for it to deliver uh, and review some of the you know the marketing materials that we do around that Need More campaign to make sure that it is able to attract more of a diverse workforce because we all know that having a diverse workforce um, gives huge benefits for the organisation but huge benefits for the communities that we're serving as well so it's um, it's certainly something we need to continue to to work together on and, and, and push for more diversity across the sector. Um, just on the website the on-call website it's interesting you said that because I looked at it yesterday um, and it's a perfect example of where the sector does something then walks away from it thinking it's finished. That website hasn't been updated for about three, four years. Um, yeah. And it, it needs that website was brilliant when it was launched at, and it was, it was what was needed, but it needs to be managed on a regular basis to make sure it's still fit for purpose every day. Um, yeah, so that's that, another one for you to take away. Well, I, I, I totally agree. And it's like lots of things. And we see this in fire services aren't we? we, we introduce something and then it, you know, it gets delivered and then it gets left and then you revisit it four or five years later and you need to almost start again. So, yes, we need that consistency. And it's not just for NFCC to do this. I'm not sure if that if that website is even hosted by possibly the Home Office, but we, we need to get... I think it is the Home Office, yeah. Yeah, um, but we, it needs to be updated, absolutely, because, um, you know, almost web pages are out of date at the moment that you publish them. So we need to make sure that that is doing what, it was intended to deliver um, so that will be a key piece of, of work for Gary and the practitioners forum in the next sort of 12 months final question and again thanks for your patience thanks for your time um there, there was a question that was asked um by the local officials with regards to fitness standards i'm not going to ask any question about fitness standards because that is another podcast i've got so many things i'd like to say about fitness standards um and how they are being used as a means of people leaving unnecessarily or not joining in the first place but i had a meeting with um acfo craig flannery earlier this week uh, from mid and west who I would hope attends the practitioners forum or whatever, because he spoke really, really well, I thought. Um, but the reason why I mentioned him is because we were talking about driving mm-hmm. and we've got, we're seeing more situations now where people are failing the fitness test and irrespective of, of by how far they're failing the fitness test, they're being taken off the run entirely. Now my view, um, and this isn't a new view, but my view is if you're a driver or an OIC, um, you do not necessarily have to hit the 42.3 VO2 max to be able to fulfill those functions. So focusing on the driver role, is there a role for a job-specific function such as driving? I mean, I, I welcome the opportunity to, you know, to have that, future podcasts on fitness because I'm, I am passionate about it and I know in Lancashire Justin again led that work for 10 years and, and we've got um, area manager Neil Taylor leading the, the fire fit work uh, on behalf of the sector now so yeah we'll set something up to, to have a, a more in-depth discussion on that but to come back to your actual point about driver only role I think the, the short answer is yes there is absolutely um I need to look at a driver on a role. And similarly, I would say the work that we've had to do across services in preparation for potential 
industrial action where we were recruiting you know new firefighters to provide that resilience and the shorter duration courses many services will have adopted almost a defensive firefighter that didn't get trained in breathing apparatus but could add value so is there a role for a firefighter that doesn't necessarily need to wear breathing apparatus does that potentially mean that the fitness levels could be slightly less than the 42.3 many services don't take firefighters off the run if they're in almost an amber section um, which is about 36 I think isn't it VO2 um, but certainly one of the things that we Sorry, are just on that Steve that, that, I do, I, that I do want to challenge because we are finding I mean it certainly used to be very common you, know, you go into the amber section uh, and then you're kept on the run while you, you have a development plan, development plan etc but we're finding more and more services now are just removing people full stop I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of that and again back to the the data piece that we need to do Tristan I know home office uh, and HMIC collect this uh, data probably HMIC more than the home office around fitness levels as part of their um, six month or so data return so we've, we've got the data and we need to understand the scale of of the problem. Um, now, my say, I can only talk on behalf of Lancashire. We we do maintain them on the run at, at Amber and give them the programme, retest, etc. So we, we, we need the standard. We're straight into the challenge around the uh, the fitness stands, aren't we? But it's got to be, again, flexible. It's got to be um, almost risk-assessed approached. So if, if an individual is not necessarily fulfilling the whole role, what does that mean? Back to the driver only. Um, we've got significant challenges of fire engines being off the run because we don't have sufficient drivers. There's a whole host of other challenges around that, as you're well aware of, in terms of the additional hours now or, or in the future when uh, the legislation changes around the number of hours to become an EFAD qualified driver. Um, pumps off the run because there's not sufficient officer in charge um, capabilities on fire stations. I'm digressing, but I want to, want to make this point that if we're expecting a, an on-call firefighter to act up to incident commander and they probably get paid 50p extra an hour for doing so, and yet we say you've got to come forward and do two days, three days, and you've got to come every year to get assessed with somebody, um, you know, putting you under the spotlight, there's no surprise that they don't want to come forward to, to carry out that OIC role. So we've got to look at different ways of addressing these challenges um, but I will come back to your point on driver only. Yes, I think there is a role. Yes, I think we need to look at some of the things that we've managed to learn from preparations for industrial action around how we can attract a workforce that can still provide a level of service. And um, and the challenges in rural communities, because if we set the bar too high and we can't get people to pass that bar, then we're not doing anybody any favours because we don't have a, a fire engine to turn out because we don't have sufficient people that have skills. So I, I welcome that longer debate on this, Tristan, because, um, you know, the 10 years of research that was done under Justin and the FIFIT programme, some leading academics involved in that, I get the 42.3, but it is, you know, we need to tease out in the next podcast where we, we understand where that was grown from and what it actually means and how we can um, almost refresh it, because that was Home Office guidance that came out in 2016, um, you know that's that's sure. seven years old. You know there's been a huge turnover of of senior leaders in that time. So we need to push things out now that that say this is a guidance and make sure that everybody understands. Uh, but it's for individual chief officers, obviously, to uh, to apply that guidance in their own services. And um, you know I do get that you will have seen probably some fire rescue services taking a more risk averse approach and taking people off the run than other services that that are doing something different. So we need to try and get that consistency across the sector. Uh, but ultimately, for me, it's making sure we've got the right skills, the right numbers to be able to turn out fire engines in rural areas when communities need us the most. Steve, um, all that's left for me to say is thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed the last hour. Uh, hopefully the listeners and the viewers have to definitely be inviting you back on um and this i think probably more than once or twice because we've got a lot that we can say i think it'd be helpful to update people as to what um your department has 
NFCC on-call lead is doing in the coming weeks, months and years. Absolutely, Tristan. I, I say I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. You can hopefully your listeners will, will will sense a passion that we've both got for the on-call service. Uh, you know, it's a tragedy in my eyes that we've lost so many firefighters over the last decade. Mm. It's a tragedy that we've got so many fire engines off the running rural parts of the country. We're not delivering the service that our communities need us to deliver. So there's so much more we can talk about. Um, but thanks very much for inviting me on and uh, I look forward to uh, to the next um, opportunity too. Brilliant. Thanks, Steve. And take care, everyone. You too. Thanks, Tristan. If you enjoyed this episode of Priority Message, why not subscribe to the podcast and recommend to your colleagues? We hope you will be joining us again soon.